We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. There's some wonderful texts that um, don't get preached on a lot. Some of them because they're a little more involved and, and the truths don't just lie right on the surface. You have to think through the, the logic of the text and it's just a good thing for a congregation to learn to do that. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. <clears throat> the title this morning is, and I think you'll see the reason for it toward the end of the message. Never let divine grace become formal and cold. Never let divine grace become formal and cold. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. We started on this last week. You'll see that in just a minute. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, partook. We talked about that. He doesn't share in flesh and blood the way we do, just by nature. But there was a point in time when God the Son partook of human flesh. The same things, that's this, flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That was one result of Christ's work that we looked at last week. And so destroy, we talked about that, and deliver all those, that's we who are here, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then, then this strange verse, which we talked about and we'll talk about more, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in, in every... Don't belittle this. In every respect. Pause for a minute. It's, you know that when we read the scripture verse, that silah? If you look it up, it actually, what it actually, it's a musical term because these were the psalms of worship that David wrote, mostly David. And what it means is, pause and think about this. So whenever you're reading a verse and you see that phrase, because we don't use that language, it means, did you understand what you just read? That's what it means. Think about that. made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. <clears throat> in my class, we talked quite a while ago in my Christian ed class about the two words that they seem like big words that every Christian needs to know the meaning of. They relate to the death of Jesus. Expiation and propitiation. And I'm assuming that if you find someone who attends my Christian ed class, they will be able to tell you the difference. Expiation is the creature side of Christ's work, where our sins are forgiven. Okay? That's expiation. Propitiation is the Godward side of salvation because we have two problems. I need forgiveness, and God's wrath must be satisfied against sin. 
Propitiation has to do with satisfying the demands of the justice of God. So expiation is the benefit we receive. Propitiation is the way God can be both just and the justifier at the same time. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is is able to help those who are being tempted. So see, propitiation has to do with the sins of the people. The priesthood of Jesus is to make propitiation, the broken relationship with God. But we have more than just a sin problem. We are tempted in everyday life. And somehow, and this is what I want to look at, Jesus coming in the flesh as a merciful and faithful high priest, it's help for me when I'm tempted. There's a lot in those verses. Let's just pray. Break, break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to all of us in this place today. Give us understanding, ears on our hearts, that will result in a fresh love for our Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are four results of our Lord's incarnation, and they're strung together in these verses. Four reasons Jesus partook of the same things, 14. And the same things are the flesh and blood that you and I are born with. Here are the four reasons. First, he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. That's verse 14. Second, he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's 15. Third, he came to become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's 17. Fourth, he came to be able to help those who are being tempted. That's verse 18. And what we did last week was we looked at the first two of those. I'm not going to review all of that. It's online. You can watch it, the notes, the whole whole thing. So today we're going to look at the last two and we're going to jump right in. Point number one. The text says, Christ took on human flesh and nature. I say flesh and nature because he was like us in every respect, the writer says. So it's not just God pretending to be a person. Did you get what I'm saying? Christ took on human flesh and nature to become a merciful and faithful high priest... And make propitiation for our sins. Let me show you where that is in the text. It's in 16 and 17. This strange verse, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. We'll talk about that. Because this, that verse 16, it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. While we might not see it right away, it has something to do with what he's going to say... We know that because of the way he starts, therefore. So that first 16 somehow leads into 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
As you study Hebrews, you might not notice it right away unless you've got the background of reading a bunch of other New Testament letters. But what you will see is he has an absolutely unique emphasis that no other New Testament writer shares in quite the same way. This is the only letter in the New Testament that specifically calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest. In fact, Jesus is not called a high priest in any other New Testament writing. It's interesting. Most Bibles, like mine, they include a note at the beginning of John chapter 17. You might have it in yours. It's not a problem. Most, most Bibles will have a little heading over the text that says Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I'm okay with that. I'm only saying that that's something the editors of various Bibles and translations have added. The title high priest doesn't occur in the text of John 17. Not anywhere. Only the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus a high priest. And it's not just some side reference. Our writer will refer to Jesus as our high priest some 18 times in this letter. So, if you're doing any kind of Bible study at all, you have to stop and say, wait a minute. What is it that he's trying to get at that is different and unique? Because it is his major Christological emphasis. Far more than he talks about the resurrection. Only once or twice in the book of Hebrews is the resurrection mentioned. Quite uniquely, our writer makes Jesus' ministry as our high priest... For his context and his writing, it's the most important thing to understand. Here's why I think it matters. We need to study Hebrews because the tendency of modern Christianity... And this is not a bad thing. The tendency is not something untrue. It's perfectly true. But the tendency of much modern evangelical Christianity is to think of the work of Jesus strictly in terms of believing Jesus died for my sins. And he did. And we should all be eternally grateful for that. But almost automatically, we summarize the entirety of salvation with with John 3.16. And that's a great verse. No argument from me. The problem with that is we tend to frame salvation exclusively in the past. I became a Christian in 1964. And I was baptized in, you know, whatever. So salvation becomes more in my history than in my contemporary. After all, Jesus himself said of his atoning work, it is there we go. (laughs) 
Now, our salvation surely is anchored in solid history. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. Christianity is not just a life philosophy. It's not just a series of moral principles or teachings. It's, I mean, the saving events of the New Testament actually happened. They are objective in nature, not subjective. So, so the core events of the Christian faith don't depend on my acceptance for their authenticity. I mean, they become effective for me through a commitment of faith. But they exist as God's saving acts, whether I believe them or not. In fact, they exist as God's saving acts, whether anybody ever believes them or not. And yes, Christ's work is finished as long as by that we all mean there's nothing of our own effort, no acts of religious penance, no uh, humanitarian works that can somehow add to and merit God's forgiveness. I grew up singing, love's redeeming work is done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a great hymn. Church has sung that for decades. But here's what I think the writer of Hebrews wants us all to understand. We need to remember, and we need the reminder of the writer of Hebrews, that while Christ's work is surely finished, it has not ended. That's not the same thing. It is ongoingly active, right now potent, right now saving, right now liberating. It's a finished work that keeps on working. A finished work that keeps on working. Our writer doesn't say we had a faithful high priest. Our writer says we have a great High priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus did not retire after Calvary. He didn't leave and ascend to heaven just hoping we would all be able to believe enough to make it to the finish line. Right there, there's the package, there's salvation. Good luck. He he applies his great, strong work to my weak flesh and blood life every day. All of these Jewish believers to whom our writer writes, they knew about the priesthood. It's important to remember his audience as he writes to these relatively new Jewish Christians who are being lectured and threatened and pulled back into the Old Covenant Judaism, pulled away from their commitment to Christ. That's the audience. And these Jewish believers knew their scriptures. They knew how God had appointed Aaron and his sons to be their priests. They knew not one of those old covenant people of God, not one of them could have any approach to God on his or her own. They needed a priest. They needed a priest to approach God on their behalf. They needed a priest to offer atonement for their sins. 
And, and, and what you're looking at, why is it that, you know, here's your Bible, New Testament, why do we need all this stuff? What you're looking at throughout that bulky, lengthy Old Testament of yours is God is training people around the concept of a coming high priest. God was training the people to know that they were in constant need of someone else to come before a holy God on their behalf. Last week, we saw our writer detailing exactly how Father God prepared and perfected Jesus as our high priest. And that high priestly work was initiated, but not terminated at Calvary. We, we benefit eternally from the nature and work of our high priest as we sit and stand here right this second. And exactly how this wonderful work takes place, that's the theme of today's today's text. Look again at the two verses we're considering under this first point. There's 16 and 17. For surely... It is not angels that he helps. The he here is Jesus in his incarnation, in his his ministry. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation... For the sins of the people. So, God the Son didn't come in the form of an angel. According to our text, he didn't come on behalf of angels. The angels who fell from holy devotion, they did so willingly. They acted without the influence of a fallen tempter. And those who fell had no effect whatsoever on the rest of the angels. That's interesting. I mean, many, many angels, according to Jesus, they remain in faithful, sinless devotion around the throne of God to this day. But that's different from we who fell. Our situation is much more desperate. Through our link with Adam, the whole of mankind is bound to sin and destruction. The Bible says there is none righteous. That means the pollution of sin is universal. The penalty of sin is universal. It's complete. By ourselves, there is no relief whatsoever, no hope for restoration, no hope for eternal life. And this is where verse 16 just starts to reveal the very first Glimpses of hope. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so the text just, it just starts gradually unfolding good news, and it does so with a classic understatement. 
Truly Messiah comes and he helps the offspring of Abraham. But, but how? How he helps? That the writer is still going to unfold. Because the incarnation of God the Son means Jesus doesn't just help the offspring of Abraham the way you might help someone looking for directions in New York with a map. Advice. No. Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham by becoming the promised seed of Abraham. One of Abraham's offspring. That's Paul's point, by the way, in Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Those promises in Genesis. It does not say, and to offsprings. See that? Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is? Christ. Here's the DNA of our high priest. He is descended from the man, Abraham. He is one of us. He didn't become an angel. He he, he became a Don Horban. He had his own fingerprints. And teeth. He had to clip his fingernails and wash his feet. He was of a certain height and a certain weight. He could eat fish and bread. He could ride a donkey. Well, exactly, Pastor Don, how does this help each one of us in our bondage to sin? Our writer, he's going to go on to explain in this 17th verse. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I see three thoughts here. Just stay with me. First, he he had to be. It's imperative, okay? It's not just a nice idea. He had to be made like us. As our writer has already pointed out, our high priest couldn't be an angel. He had to be one of us. If you want to see that in a different different passage, Hebrews 5.1 says this. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So nothing could be clearer. If a high priest is to represent me before God, he must be a human high priest. If he's going to represent me before God, he has to do his work from my end of things. If he's not, then he's some other creature's high priest, but not mine. And so our high priest had to be, 17a, had to be like his brothers. The second thing I see in this verse is he had to be a merciful and 
faithful high priest in the service to God. And I think the writer has something on his mind when he very uh, intentionally uses those two words, merciful and faithful. Merciful and a faithful high priest. Either one on its own nullifies any help for me. Let's take faithful first. Jesus must be a faithful high priest before God if his sacrifice is to be acceptable. What that means is Jesus couldn't be a sinner. Jesus couldn't be a covenant breaker. That's why, by the way, in that training period of the old covenant sacrificial period, no imperfect sacrifice was to be offered. Have you noticed that as you're reading through your Bible? Don't you bring me a lamb with a blemish. Don't you bring a pigeon with a broken wing. Unacceptable. The sacrifice had to be the sacrifice had to be better than the sinful person offering it. Not blemished in any way. Or it would be a useless sacrifice. God wouldn't accept it. The problem is... Mankind... We have never had a completely faithful high priest until Jesus came. Every human being is a sinner. We don't have a perfect sacrifice. We can't find one. We can't produce one. So what, what will we do? Our Lord comes and he dies on that cross as the only faithful covenant keeper before the law of God. He's a faithful high priest. There. Our only solution. Because it has to be has to be a person from our side and it has to be sinless. All we have is Jesus. Right? That's all we have. No other options. This, by the way, is why there's no other religion that can get you to heaven. We're not bad-mouthing other religions. It's simply the teaching of God's word. I don't need a prophet. I need a perfect high priest. I don't need a teacher. I need a perfect high priest. Now let's look at that term merciful. A merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the striking thing about that term is there is not one single reference through the whole Old Testament, not one reference to any priest ever being called merciful. That wasn't a requirement. Father God was merciful, sure. But the priest merely did his job. He just followed the system. He followed the rules. Jesus is called a, and only Jesus, is called a merciful high priest because he doesn't just offer cold forgiveness. That, that's why 
He's the only one called the merciful high priest. There's nothing clinical about his work on my behalf. I want, I want to say more on that point for the end. It's how I want to wrap up. So I'm going to come back to that. Now remember where we are. I said there were three ideas in that 17th verse. First, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He had to be like us in every respect. Second, he had to be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. And now the third thing in that 17th verse. Jesus had to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This would be an easier concept for the readers, the first readers in context of this letter. It would be easier for them to understand than it is for us to understand it. Every Jewish reader of this letter would know exactly what our writer meant. Every Jew wandering through the wilderness could go to Moses or Joshua, or parents, or any wise elder in Israel for counsel, for advice, for assistance. But, but none of those leaders could do the work of a priest for those people. Did everybody get what I said? That is really an important point in our writer's mind. To deal with God... The people had to go to the priest. The priest was for atonement. Other people were for life skills, support, empathy, counsel, companionship, peace of mind, a cure for loneliness. They could get that with all sorts of other people. The priest was for sin. The priest was to clear up the dreadful situation, the threatening situation of the wrath of God against sinners. And people, people couldn't just sit safely with their sin and hope God would forget about it, maybe get used to it. Never forget that important training period of the Old Testament sacrificial system because, because there was a point God was trying to make. I had a lady talk to me just recently. I guess she's working her way through the Old Testament. And she said, I can't believe how unfair it is. All these animals, these sweet little animals who did nothing wrong to anybody. And I said to her, you know, I, I think you're supposed to feel that way. Like, I think that's the point. What was the meaning of all those Tens of millions of dead lambs and goats. Those bloody little carcasses would make a pile as high as Mount Sinai. What, what was God trying to say? He's trying to say sin, sin, is a, sin is brutal. He's trying to say sin matters. He's trying to say there's horrible consequences to sin. He's trying to say sin is a life and death issue. 
He's trying to say then and now God can't just pronounce forgiveness without punishing sin. He's trying to show that a holy God is not an easy God to live with for fallen people. He's dangerous. Divine justice comes with a huge price tag. Oh, how careful this church needs to be in keeping the main thing the main thing. We do a lot of good things in this church, more than you even know about in the community. But we all, we all carry around inner persons who, on their own, are in no position to be anywhere near God. Do we understand that? We need a perfectly righteous, covenant-keeping high priest to stand in our stead. We need a high priest who is one with us, for sure, but one who offers a righteousness that not one of us possesses. God's absolute justice must be authentically satisfied, and there's only one such high priest. A merciful high priest, but one who makes propitiation. You see, I hope we all understand, when we say people need Jesus, we don't just mean they need him for inner tranquility or emotional therapy. No, Jesus took on human flesh to, verse 17, make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now I want to come back to that point that I said I'd return to. Point number two is Christ took on human flesh and nature to remember our weaknesses and help in our temptations. For because, so there's a link here, because he himself has suffered when tempted. Because of that, this, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's a pretty good description of us, isn't it? I love the way the writer of Hebrews, all those human beings, how would you describe them? Well, those are the people being tempted. That, that's your life. We're tempted in different ways to different things. Oh, we categorize and have our lists, the really bad ones and not so bad ones, but tempted. Anger, pride, idolatry, materialism, laziness, forgetfulness, immorality, impurity, stretching the truth, boasting, caring more about self-image than Jesus. The driving idea behind this whole series is how the new covenant is so much better than the old. It's right in the main title. How the new covenant is so much better than the old. God, of course, is exactly the same under both covenants. He doesn't change. But as we said in our, really, our very first study in chapter 1, his, his self-revelation 
the unfolding of his self-revelation. It, it's progressive. It's layered. And we are greatly benefited by that. Sinners have always needed to approach God in both the old covenant and the new. We need help. And in his grace, God provided that temporary sacrificial system in the Old Testament, primarily designed to train people, train people around two important concepts. The first concept was that God's love must never be interpreted as tolerance. Boy, the church needs to hear that today. God's love must never be interpreted as mere tolerance. All those sacrifices. He would never just look the other way when people sinned. And and what would make people see sin as something serious and offensive? Well, shed blood. Over and over again. Death is the price of sin. So, So God's love for sinners must never be confused with tolerance of people's sins. But there's a second thing that was being trained in that old covenant system. And the second thing is this. God wanted his people to know he himself would initiate a plan to allow his people access even after they had sinned. In the Old Covenant, priests would offer sacrifices, dreadful sacrifices, over and over and over again. This this was the only way God could be worshipped and loved by sinful people. So both the seriousness of sin, that God's love doesn't mean he could tolerate it, and the persistence of grace through the sacrificial system, they were being taught in rudimentary, repeated, preparatory fashion enter the new covenant we don't approach God like that anymore though he is the same and those two principles abide eternally our approach to the same God is very different probably like most of you since as early as I can remember I was taught to end all my simple prayers saying, in Jesus' name. And while I probably didn't understand the significance of that fully, I did, I did start to realize that it marked a change in the way sinners called out to God. It marked a change with the way sinners approached God. You see, people under the Old Covenant were never able to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said so. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Until now. Of course. How could they? Jesus hadn't shed his blood. The Lamb of God, like all those slain lambs in the Old Covenant... The Lamb of God still awaited the cup of God's wrath against your sin and mine. So that final priestly sacrifice was still ahead. 
And, and then the disciples would pray, whether they used the exact phrase or not, they would pray in Jesus' name. Jesus would be the fully human offering, the offspring of Abraham, yet perfectly righteous son of God, and he would bear their sin and carry their love and their worship and their prayer to Father God. That's the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus. How do you think, when Tom stands up here, how do you think all these worship courses reach a holy God coming from people like us? It all goes through Jesus. He's the high priest who makes access. And it reaches the throne of God. I don't know what kind of a week you had. I wouldn't want to stand here right now facing an absolutely holy God without Jesus, without a Redeemer. I don't think I'm... Are you ready for that? If you say yes, you're delusional. What I want to close with now, it might not be new to you, it was fresh to me. This text, it pounds out a huge difference in the high priestly ministry of, of Jesus. That, that 18th verse. It's the reason for the title of this teaching, Never Let Divine Grace Become Formal and Cold. So here's what I want you to take home from church today. When you sin, and when you are struggling not to sin, all right? When you sin, and when you are struggling not to sin, you have, you have a compassionate high priest who remembers what it's like to be tempted. Do you, do you see that here? For because, here's the reason, because he himself has suffered when tempted, because of that, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So I'm not making this up. When you sin, and when you are struggling not to sin, your high priest remembers what it's like to suffer temptation. This, this is the brand new feature of the new covenant. And though it was a great condescension that even under the old covenant, our creator God, it is said that he knew our frame and remembered we are dust. True enough. While that's true, before Jesus took on human flesh... The Godhead had no way of remembering what it's like to be tempted. Did I scream that loud enough so everybody got it? The Godhead, before Christ, had no way of remembering what it's like to be tempted. He suffered temptation. The text says, because of that, he's able to help. All of this came with Jesus and the new covenant. This is the new covenant participation initiated by our descended from Abraham, fully human, sinless high priest. Here's what this means. Last page of my notes, so you can take a deep breath. 
Here's what this means. There is a huge difference between believing in a technically correct doctrine of forgiveness through Christ's death, which is true enough, but there's a world of difference between believing a technically correct doctrine of the atonement and and feeling, feeling how such forgiveness is generated in our merciful high priest. Apply this. When you struggle with your own weakness, am I the only one, does anybody else ever do that? When you struggle with your own weakness or face extreme times of testing with the devil, of course, you call out for grace and help. We all do. Here's the new thought. And when Jesus hears your cry, when Jesus hears my cry for help, the first thing he remembers isn't, this is the second time today that Don Horbin has failed in the battle. That's not the first thing he thinks of when I cry out for help and mercy. The first thing he remembers is how demanding it was when he himself was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Never forget this. This is the new covenant. This is what makes it new. There is an identifying with you and me by our high priest. A sympathetic identifying. He remembers what it's like to suffer temptation. So so he doesn't offer grace to Don Horbin the way a president might sign some document of pardon for criminals he's never met as he leaves office. It's not a deal. Our Lord's heart and our Lord's memory are with repentant sinners. There's an emotion in his grace. Our Lord always forgives with a sympathetic memory of our humanity because he himself suffered temptation. He gets it. There's a passion in it. So he doesn't just offer forgiveness with a signature. He feels ongoingly sympathetic to me because he's been exactly where I am minus the sin. And he's not ashamed to call me his brother. There's no other religion on the planet that does this, church. None. This is why it's the name above every name. 